Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the OrthoBullets podcast. In today's episode, we cover the topic of revision total elbow arthroplasty found under the shoulder and elbow section at orthobullets.com. Let's begin with a quick summary. Revision total elbow arthroplasty is most commonly performed due to aseptic loosening, periprosthetic infection, or periprosthetic fracture with loose implants. Diagnosis is made with radiographs in the setting of periprosthetic fracture or implant loosening, and inflammatory markers and elbow aspiration can be helpful in the diagnosis of periprosthetic infection. The type of revision depends on the etiology of failure, the patient age, and patient comorbidities. Now let's get into the episode. In terms of the epidemiology, the overall lifetime revision rate of a TEA is about 13%, and the current overall outcomes and survival rates of TEA demonstrate overall 5, 10, 15, and 20-year rates of 92%, 81%, and 61%, respectively. In terms of the demographics, the primary patients undergoing TEA initially were those with rheumatoid arthritis. However, with the advent of anti-rheumatics, a major proportion of patients undergoing TEA are now post-traumatic. Risk factors for overall TEA failure include smoking, significant medical comorbidities, non-compliance with activity restrictions, a non-constrained system which may result in dislocation, and a highly constrained system which may result in loosening. In terms of the pathophysiology, there are five primary modes of TEA failure requiring revision. One of these is infection. Initially, this made up about 8% of cases, but since the advent of DMARDs, rates have dropped to about 3%. Infection is substantially higher than arthroplasty of other joints. The most common pathogen is Staph aureus, which makes up about 40% of cases, followed by Staph epidermidis, which makes up about 30-35% to 35% of cases. And remember that there are worse outcomes with Staph epidermidis. Risk factors for TEA infection include a higher prevalence in patients with rheumatoid arthritis on steroids, a decreased thickness of the soft tissue envelope, prior elbow infection, prior elbow surgery, and psychiatric illness. Another mode of failure is periprosthetic fracture. This makes up about 5% of cases. It may occur intraoperatively, which can occur during bone preparation, reaming, and implantation, or postoperatively, which may be due to noncompliance with activities and ground-level falls. Another mode of failure is aseptic loosening. This makes up about 15% of cases. Remember that there are higher rates associated with cemented and highly constrained systems, and this can result from anterior impingement of the coronoid being driven into the anterior humeral flange during maximal elbow flexion. Another mode of failure is instability, and this is commonly due to unconstrained TEA systems. And the last mode of failure is component failure, which makes up about 15% of cases. This is most commonly due to bushing wear. Remember that this is most common in younger patients or those with significant pre-existing deformity. Now let's discuss the Mayo classification of periprosthetic fractures. A type 1 fracture is characterized by a periarticular fracture involving the humeral condyle or olecranon. It is caused by osteolysis around the hinge components and distracting forces from muscle attachments. Treatment of an undisplaced type 1 fracture involves immobilization and soft tissue repair, which is sufficient to achieve fibrous union, and rigid fixation is not required. For a displaced type 1 fracture, ORIF with heavy non-absorbable sutures or tension band wiring is the treatment of choice if there is limited periprosthetic bone. A type 2 fracture is characterized by a fracture along the length of the humeral or ulnar stem. There are three subtypes. A type 2-1 is a well-fixed implant. A type 2-2 has loose implants with good bone stock. And a type 2-3 has loose implants with severe bone loss. Treatment for a type 2-1 is ORIF with component retention plus or minus a strut allograft. 
for a type 2-2. Treatment is revision arthroplasty using long stem prosthesis, plus or minus a strut allograft and impaction bone grafting. Locking plates and cerclage wires may be considered for added stability. Type 2-3 fractures require revision arthroplasty with extensive allograft supplementation, and oftentimes they require resection arthroplasty. A type 3 fracture is distal to the prosthesis. It is treated like routine fractures. Radiographs and CTs are used to ensure implants are not loose and that the cement mantle is not cracked. Treatment, if the implants are well fixed, includes immobilization for the humerus and RIF for the ulna. If the implants are loose, then one should treat it as a type 2-2 fracture. Moving on to the presentation. Symptoms may include elbow crepitus or a squeaking sound with motion. There may be elbow pain, and remember that pain at night or rest is a red flag for infection. There may also be swelling and a decrease in motion after a period of normal motion. Remember that progressive loss of motion without identifiable causes is also a red flag for infection. On exam, one may note erythema or a sinus tract in the setting of infection. There may be diffuse tenderness, elbow swelling, and deformity in the case of significant bushing wear. And there may be a painful and limited range of motion. In particular, one may note crepitus or squeaking during motion. In terms of imaging, recommended radiographs include AP and lateral of the humerus, elbow, and forearm, and specific findings may include periprosthetic component loosening, and remember that early unexplained loosening is concerning for infection. Other findings include periprosthetic humeral or ulnar fractures and polyethylene bushing wear. Remember that the angle of intersection between the ulnar implant in relation to the humeral implant should be measured. Mild to moderate bushing wear is considered when the angle is greater than 10 degrees. CT scan is indicated to assess for periprosthetic osteolysis or loosening, and it can be helpful to determine if the cement mantle is intact or broken in cases of periprosthetic fracture. An MRI is indicated to evaluate for an abscess or a soft tissue infection. Specific views should include a sequence with metal subtraction, and MRI should be obtained with contrast. In terms of further studies, Remember that there are no definitive tests to reliably diagnose periprosthetic elbow infection, but there should be a high clinical suspicion for diagnosis of infection. Serum labs should include an ESR, CRP, and white blood cells, which are usually elevated, and IL-6 and alpha-defensin have not been previously studied for utility in PJI of the elbow. Elbow arthrocentesis has no documented acceptable synovial white blood cell count indicative of infection, and a positive culture generally is indicative of chronic infection. This has a very high positive predictive value, but a very low negative predictive value, so a negative aspiration should not be used to rule out infection. An intraoperative analysis can include intraoperative histologic analysis. This is the most effective way of diagnosing TEA infection, as a specificity of 93% and a negative predictive value of 90%. However, it has a sensitivity of only 51%. One can also obtain intraoperative cultures. Remember that cultures will be negative about 10% of the time in cases of infectious TEA, and negative cultures are more common in chronic infections, which occurs in about 15% of cases, compared to acute infections, which are negative in only about 3% of cases. In terms of treatment, non-operative options include immobilization and a functional elbow brace. This is indicated for a type 1 humeral condylar or olecranon fracture with a stable prosthesis, a type 3 humeral fracture with a stable implant, or patients who are not candidates for surgery, such as those who are medically frail, are non-compliant, or demonstrate frequent falls. The length of immobilization depends on the location of the fracture, but is typically between two to four weeks. One should use a Sarmiento brace for a type three humerus fracture, or a functional elbow brace for a type one fracture. Operative options include irrigation and debridement, bushing exchange, 
and component retention. This is indicated for crepitus, squeaking, and elbow pain with range of motion with stable implants and no evidence of infection, or in acute periprosthetic joint infections, that is, those that are presenting less than 90 days from surgery. In terms of outcomes, in appropriate candidates without signs of infection, 75% result in good results at five-year follow-up following isolated bushing exchange. In cases of acute infection, IND and component retention is 63% effective at eradicating acute infections, but it is only 31% effective in management of chronic infections. Another option is open reduction in internal fixation, component retention, plus or minus fracture excision, plus or minus strut allograft. This is indicated in a type 1 periarticular olecranon fracture, a type 2-1 fracture, and a type 3 fracture of the ulna. In terms of outcomes, 80-90% to 90 of patients have no complications following isolated ORIF or excision for selected fractures. Another option is single-stage revision TEA plus or minus ORIF and allograft. This is indicated for type 2 periprosthetic humeral shaft or ulna fractures and for aseptic loosening. In terms of the outcomes, it is only 66% effective for eradicating chronic TEA infection. Another option is component explantation and two-stage revision TEA. This is indicated for a type 2-2 fracture and for infected periprosthetic TEA. In terms of the outcomes, the success rate of eradicating chronic infections is 90% with the two-stage revision TEA compared to 66% for a single stage. And the last option is resection arthroplasty. This is indicated as a salvage procedure for treatment-resistant PJI in patients who are unable to undergo multiple surgical procedures, have severe bone loss, and severely compromised soft tissue envelopes, as well as a type 2-3 periprosthetic fracture that is not amenable for reconstruction. In terms of the outcomes, it is 71% effective in completely eradicating infection, and it leads to the lowest functional scores based on the Mayo Elbow Performance Score. Now let's discuss the techniques for these procedures in more detail. For irrigation and debridement, bushing exchange, and component retention, the approach involves using a prior surgical approach, if feasible, to allow adequate exposure to the elbow joint. In terms of the soft tissue work, most authors advocate for ulnar nerve exploration or decompression in the presence of ulnar nerve symptoms. If the nerve is not symptomatic, it can be identified proximally and protected throughout the rest of the case. A thorough debridement of any necrotic or infected soft tissue should be performed with care to preserve a soft tissue envelope for closure. And in terms of the instrumentation, humerus and ulnar components should be uncoupled, and both humeral and ulnar components should be inspected for integrity, loosening, and rotation, and a polyethylene bushing exchange should then be performed. Now for open reduction and internal fixation, component retention, plus or minus fracture excision, and plus or minus strut allograft, the approach for humeral fractures involves a posterior paratricipital muscle sparing approach, and for ulna fractures, it involves a posterior approach to the elbow with ulna subcutaneous border extension. In terms of the soft tissues, make sure to identify the radial nerve. Remember that the radial nerve crosses lateral to the intermuscular septum, 14 centimeters proximal to the lateral epicondyle, and the ulnar nerve should be identified proximally. In terms of the instrumentation, for a type 1 periarticular olecranon fracture, if there is extensor mechanism disruption, then variation of a tension band technique is recommended. K-wires should be placed dorsal to the implant to allow for engagement with the cement mantle, followed by a figure of 8 technique. If the extensor mechanism is intact and there is a well-fixed stem, then a simple excision of the fragment may be performed. For a type 2-1 humerus fracture without component loosening, one can use an allograft strut with cerclage cables. One can use both anterior and posterior allograft struts if necessary, 
and fixation along the humeral implant is achieved using unique cortical screws and cerclage cables. For a type 3 ulna fracture without component loosening, a standard ORIF with plate fixation may be performed. Complications related to these procedures include hardware prominence causing soft tissue and nerve irritation. For a single-stage revision TEA plus or minus ORIF and allograft, the approach is similar to what was previously described. In terms of the bone work, one should remove all loose implants and loose cement. In terms of the instrumentation, the canal must be prepared for an implant with a longer stem that will extend two cortical widths beyond a fracture if it is present. Cementation is preferred, and it is important to cement the revision stem before the struts are placed because cement extravasation out of the medullary canal may sit deep to the allograft strut and prevent allograft incorporation or even cause nerve irritation. In terms of the bone strut allografts, for the humeral-sided fractures, a longer posterior and shorter anterior strut are preferred in order to prevent impingement with elbow flexion. For ulnar-sided fractures, a dorsal allograft strut is placed laterally under the anconeus or medially under FCU to prevent subcutaneous prominence. One should also use plate and screw fixation. And in terms of the implants, long stem implants should be used in all cases. For a component explantation and two-stage revision TEA, the recommended approach is a posterior tricep sparing approach. For the soft tissues, if the ulnar nerve has been previously transposed and the patient has ulnar nerve symptoms, consider revising the transposition or performing a submuscular transposition. In terms of the component explantation, for removal of the humeral prosthesis, one should use a burr and flexible osteotomes to remove cement circumferentially around the humerus. Loose components and those with precarious fixation may be removed with a slap hammer extractor. If humeral components cannot be safely removed, a posterior humeral cortical split with the use of a saw and osteotomes can be used. For removal of ulnar prosthesis, in cases of well-fixed ulnar components and firmly retained cement, an extended olecranon osteotomy provides good exposure to the implant and cement. These should be repaired with cables following reimplantation, and one should attempt to remove all cement. One can use flexible reamers to further debreed the canal. In terms of the antibiotic spacer, the antibiotic spacer or beads are placed into both humeral and ulnar medullary canals, and discs of cement are placed in locations around the articulation. One should avoid cement placement in subcutaneous tissues. A static external fixator can stabilize the joint while the spacer is in place. For intravenous antibiotics, at least six weeks of intravenous culture-specific antibiotics are recommended prior to attempting a reimplantation. And in terms of the reimplantation, once inflammatory markers have normalized, one can proceed with the long-stem reimplantation, and antibiotic cementation is recommended. For periprosthetic fractures, this may also be performed in two stages. In stage one, one should address the fracture union with an iliac crest bone graft and plate fixation. For stage two, which is after fracture union, one can revise the implants with a longer stem and impaction graft. For a resection arthroplasty, the approach involves using a prior surgical approach, especially if posterior midline. In terms of the soft tissues, take care to keep a thick subcutaneous soft tissue flap to allow for skin closure. And delicate and careful exposure of the ulnar and radial nerve should be performed which may be located in the most unpredictable locations. In terms of the bony work, proceed with the explantation as previously described with careful removal of all cement. And in terms of stabilization, in the absence of sufficient bone stability, the ulna and humerus may be stabilized with heavy sutures or wires through the bone. Complications related to revision TEA include persistent deep infections. This occurs in about 10% of patients following two-stage revision and in about 30% of patients following single-stage revision. Risk factors include polymicrobial infections, rheumatoid patients on steroids, and extensive bone loss. 
Treatment is resection arthroplasty. Another complication is ulnar nerve palsy. Risk factors for this are cement extravasation from the medullary canal and not visualizing the nerve during a revision surgery. Risk factors for a radial nerve palsy include cement extravasation from the medullary canal and impingement with long plates used for fracture fixation. The last complication is symptomatic hardware. Risk factors for this is ORIF of periprosthetic ulna fractures. Treatment is removal of the hardware after fracture union. And lastly, with regards to prognosis, this will depend on the etiology of TEA failure, medical comorbidities, and remaining ulna and humeral bone stock. Now that we've discussed the major points relating to revision TEA, let's walk through some questions to apply what we've learned and get a sense of how the topic might be tested. For the first question, consider the following clinical scenario. What is the preferred treatment for a Propionibacterium acnes infection that has been symptomatic for six months after total elbow arthroplasty with well-fixed components, good bone stock, and a healthy patient? And the answer choices are, choice one, non-operative treatment with IV antibiotics for six weeks. Choice two, arthroscopic irrigation and debridement. Choice three, open irrigation and debridement with polyexchange. Choice four, single-stage revision arthroplasty. Or choice five, two-stage revision arthroplasty. The best answer to this question is choice five, two-stage revision arthroplasty. Chronic P. acnes infection of elbow arthroplasty are best treated with two-stage revision arthroplasty in healthy patients with adequate bone stock for reimplantation. The algorithm to treat infected total elbow arthroplasty depends on a number of factors, including patient characteristics, bacteriology, duration of symptoms, and implant fixation and bone stock. The publication by Yamaguchi et al. discusses that poor health status or inadequate bone stock may indicate resection arthroplasty, while acute infections defined as less than one month with staph aureus have a greater than 50% chance of success with debridement and retention of components. Most chronic infections are those caused by staph epidermidis or P. acnes have high recurrence rates with retention and a two-stage revision should be considered with antibiotic spacer and at least six weeks of IV antibiotics between staged procedures. Immediate reimplantation in a single stage is controversial and success rates range from 25 to 75 percent and are most successful in staph aureus infections. For the second question, consider the following. What is the most common mode of failure following unconstrained total elbow arthroplasty? And the answer choices are, choice one, polyethylene wear. Choice two, bushing wear. Choice three, instability. Choice four, component fracture. Or choice five, loosening of the humeral component. The best answer to this question is choice three, instability. Elbow instability after placement of an unconstrained implant is most often the result of ligamentous insufficiency that can occur late after the index procedure. Instability can also occur from component malpositioning that creates undue stress to the collateral ligaments during the life of the prosthesis. Instability leads to revision surgery in many patients. Polyethylene wear and bushing wear are more common in linked and semi-constrained elbow arthroplasties. Loosening of humeral components may occur with aseptic or septic disease. Component fracture is uncommon. That's all for this review about revision total elbow arthroplasty. We hope that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session from OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. As a reminder, you can follow along with these podcast episodes by reviewing the topics directly on orthobullets.com. 
you can listen to these episodes on the OrthoBullets website or phone app while reading through the topic. If the OrthoBullets podcast has been valuable to you, we'd be thrilled if you considered leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast. Bullets podcast.